Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Support for this episode is brought to you by Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting. Chirpy Bird helps clinicians navigate the transition to value-based care. Welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they're proud of, advice they would give to other women in health IT, and much more. I'm Joy Rios. And I'm Robin Roberts. Don't you hate it when technology gets too technical? We do. So we're thrilled that Rachel Fernandez, Vice President of Dynamic Health IT, is talking us through the mechanisms for sharing information in healthcare, both past, present, and future. Interoperability is all the rage this year, and Rachel simplifies what's going on and how she's working to help others understand and work towards trusted sharing of information. Absolutely. I have a quote, and I use it. I don't know whose it was, but I always tell everyone that comes to work on our team that if you're the smartest person in the room, you're not in the right room because everyone needs to learn from someone else. And I've always taken that philosophy that, you know, if I'm at a place where I feel like I know everything, then I need to move somewhere else. (laughs) You know, I need to get to, I need to broaden my horizons, open the door for other opportunities so that I'm learning still. And, um, and even when you know it all, someone else knows it differently. So (laughs) it's so true. It's true. Our entire team is told that the day they're hired, uh, before they're hired, actually, to let them know that you're going to learn something from anyone. The intermediate developer is going to teach the lead developer something at some point. QA is always going to have a different way of looking at a task. And that's just been my motto since, since college, that I will definitely find that avenue I need to find to make sure I'm not feeling like I'm the smartest person in the room. Um, the other part of that is even if you know it all, which nobody knows it all, but if you feel like you know it all, you're going to learn it differently from someone else. And you're going in that process, you'll learn something new. I came into healthcare IT, a headhunter pushed me this way. I was, I'm older than you might think, <laughs> uh, but I, my first experience with computer science was on a Tandy 1000 TL2 computer. 
um, I had a professor that I a teacher that was a, a male and he said, you know, why don't you, um, here's, here's my program. I want you to repeat the program, basically copy my code and you're going to end up with a spaceship, a little asteroid type of spaceship that you would see in the game asteroids on screen. Okay, cool. So we had four girls in this computer science class. It was an elective. We picked to take it. I was in an all-girl Catholic school at the time, and at that, I was able to create the spaceship, also make it take off and um, change colors, why it lifted off. I thought I had found my calling. I was going to be a programmer for the rest of my life, and that's what I wanted to do. Um, went to college, and it just wasn't there for me. The industry wasn't as accepting of females. I would have been the one of 150 students, and I didn't feel like I had the confidence to continue. So I went into accounting, and I became an accountant. From that point on, I ended up doing accounting in companies and moving their ledgers and journals into computer systems using QuadraPro or QuickBooks or uh, it, QuickBooks didn't exist at the time. So we used QuadraPro, then we used Excel and I was like, look, you don't need me anymore. There's this great program. You just have to send me your files, you know, end of the year and I will handle your taxes for you. So my concept of bringing things from paper to computer systems was all accounting based. It was numbers. It all made sense. Everything had a number and account. Um, so I got a little bored. Um, I worked for a healthcare, health and wellness um, center in New Orleans. It was franchised. Uh, we had about seven locations and Katrina hit. And my job was to bring disaster recovery, handle disaster recovery for the stores. It was, it was not that difficult once the internet was up and everything was working. We had all stores running again. Um, from that point on, I, I felt like I wasn't really doing what I wanted to be doing any longer. Um, Katrina just kind of opened a lot of people's eyes and closed a lot of doors for a lot of people. In that process, I started hearing, I don't know if y'all are aware of, I'm sure you are of the industry because it's Karen DeSalvo and, and what happened to Katrina in the healthcare industry and the way we suffered here and patients suffered as well as nurses and, and doctors through the process. And I just felt like it was interesting, but I didn't know where I fit in. So I reached out to a headhunter and she says, look, you need to go in healthcare IT. She says, you have the skills, you have what you're talking to things that people in the industry are talking about. And Katrina gave me a good end because there was devastation here and we needed to figure out a better way to do processes. I came to work for a healthcare IT company in New Orleans that had no New Orleans customers. <laughs> uh, it wasn't the realm that we were in. All of our customers were nationwide, and we, I think we had one customer in Slidell. But I started doing interface engine work, and I was hands-in. I, I said, teach me, show me. And at the same time, I did some you know, office management overseeing of the, the administration team. Um, got very comfortable in the healthcare IT interface engine, V2, HL7 messages. And from there, just it kind of grew. It, from that point on, we had CCDAs, V3 of the data elements that, um, and documents that were being shared. And now, of course, fire. Um, so that's where we are today. That's kind of my little story about how I got here. And no, I am not clinical in any way, but I know a lot about clinical terms because of my job, as well as being a mother. You know, being a mom, we're the caregiver for 
our children, our husbands, our parents. A lot of people would ask me when I was in the hospital, are you a nurse? And I'm like, nope, I just, you know, I'm just a mom. And then I realized, you know, I really discounted that by saying just a mom. There's so many things that a mother's intuitions and things she brings to the job helps her every day with multitasking and organization and just getting things done timely um, because you're always on someone else's schedule normally if you're a mom. (laughs) Rachel, I I want to stop you for a moment because here you are saying of, you know, how much does the being very humble about things that you don't know, but you just rattled off HL7, FIRE, and CCDA, (laughs) which is, you know, upper-level health IT stuff. So for those who don't know, and maybe, you know, for folks that are not aware of the acronym SOUP, could you take a minute to kind of talk about maybe those three and what they actually mean for a layperson? Absolutely, absolutely. So HL7 is health level seven. It's the seventh level of healthcare. And in that standard, there are message structures that are required. So if a patient comes into the hospital, they are automatically triggered in an electronic medical record, a message that will produce an admit message. And that message has a structure. And in that structure, you're getting the patient demographics, you're getting the patient um, visit information, you get the doctor information, you get their next of kin, so that message, and there's aller- sometimes there's allergies in ADP. So that ADP message structure was very defined, and certain information can be transferred through that. There's also order messages and result messages for labs and, and radiology. There's allergy messages. There's immunization messages. So in the background of when a patient comes in, even before meaningful use, there was the concept, or promoting interoperability now, but there was the concept of data is being transferred within that environment. And if you were lucky, the message was going out to the lab system to let the lab system know the patient had an order. And if the lab system was across the street, they might have had a connection across the street to send that lab message so that when you got there with your lab order in hand, they also had the lab order in the computer system. And it was more of a verification process. So that's what V2 allowed. It allowed the transmission through interface engine, which is pretty much tunnels from place to place that deliver the messages that are coming from registration or pharmacy or, like I said, our lab system. That's V2. Um, from there, the industry decided we, there's not enough. We're not hitting all the cases with the data delivery that's occurring. So we should move to V3. Um, and in the United States, we did CCDA. A CCDA um, document is an, an XML format, and you know I'm throwing out another more um, acronyms out there, but the XML document is a certain structure. It looks nothing like a V2 message. It's, it's um, longitudinal. It can go across um, care continuum, whereas an HL7 V2 message is just a staple, you know, staple in time. So then you ended up with these really large documents that doctors were having to produce because of meaningful use to send out to other clinicians to transition a patient. So that's the the CCDA, the purpose of the CCDA is to give the patient a snapshot of their information in a document that's human readable, as well as to transfer a patient to another doctor with a human readable document. So that's all working great. Maybe not because the doctors are very upset. We're very upset that 
why are you sending me all this garbage was quotes from many doctors. Where do I find the information I need? How do I find out what lab result they had, you know, three months ago when I have 500 labs in, my, in front of me for one patient? So the brain team, as I like to call them at HL7, um, Graham Greaves is um, one of the leaders there. He's called like fire chief, came up with fire with his team. And so the best information resource was born, born at that point and has continues to emerge. Um, right now we're on version four for certification. We implemented version three. Organot projects, you've probably heard the words of Organot. Um, they use Smart on Fire and that's version two. Um, the Apple Health Kit reads in version two at this point of fire and patients can see their data in the Apple Health Kit if they, if their vendor or their the hospital they happen to it go to and have a medical record at has a um, fire API that hooks up to Apple Health Kit, they can then get their data in their phone. Um, and usually when it's that kind of data, is it really, it's not the complete picture of their care, but actually targeted pieces of their health record that like kind of what they need, the information they need at that specific time instead of giving them exactly. everything. Would that Okay. That's exactly right. So we have patient portal. I mean, if you go to your doc, your ENT, you have a patient portal. If you go to your general practitioner, you have a patient portal. If you're lucky, you're under, you know, a bigger system where you might not have to go to so many different portals. The concept of FIRE was to give the information in pieces or the full document if you care for it, but to give the information in the different sections of care that you need. So if I need my child's immunization for the last year, then I'm able to request the immunization. I don't have to have all the lab results if I don't want them. This allows patients to share their data, if they choose to, to a study. Say I have a cancer patient and they'd like to share their data for maybe Sync for Science, one of the programs that's out there. They would be able to share their data from their phone and have control of that data. They can determine, I don't want to download any of my lab results. I'd rather just have my medications in my phone because I want an active rec record of my medications. So they can choose to just have those medications in their system or choose to just share their medications and not share their lab results. Rachel, you brought up something mm -hmm. a little bit ago about being a mom as a consumer mm -hmm. of healthcare, both for yourself, your kids, your family. And so the Arcanaut Project on Fire is specifically connected to Boston Children's right? Yes. And so as you yes. think about being a mom and really where we started so many years ago, these standards, building consensus to get more streamlined standards, giving people relevant information, not just throwing up the whole record to the doctor and really having them probably more lost than they were to begin with. Um, where do you see this going and what kind of benefit do you think we'll see as a result of projects like Argonaut with using Smart on Fire, specifically Boston Children's and those parents? How does that have you feeling, I guess, both professionally about the evolution of things and where they're headed and maybe even personally and the benefits and still maybe where we have to go into the future for people to really realize the value as, you know, a parent? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's all, I think most of it is education. People need to know that they have their health record available and it's supposed to be provided to them. We need the public um, to come up and the developers and the innovators to come up with platforms that allow patients to easily get their information. 
Um, I, as a parent and an evacuee from Hurricane Katrina, happened to grab the folder of my kids' immunizations when I grabbed my health insurance, I mean, my health insurance and my home insurance. So I had my kids' immunization records when I evacuated um, on paper. When I got there, the first thing I had to do was get my kids in school because I couldn't return home. And it was, I had the paper, but so many parents didn't. And you don't want to have your kids be vaccinated. Of course, the government comes up with a plan and handles that type of situation. But my kids were in school two days after I realized I couldn't return home, which was about three days after Katrina. Um, those type of things, being able to pull my children's immunization records while I'm, try I'm at home, you know, that first week school starts and I just need to, you know, give them the most recent immunization records. I could just pull that up on my phone and fill out the documentation or better yet, send it, you know, out in an email to the school and say, here's their records. It's updated. Um, that to me is, you know, the simple things. Let's do the simple things first. Um, can I see my child's growth chart on my phone? Um, how do I check to see what my lab results were without having to wait for the doctor to actually review and get back to me when I missed his call last time? Those type of things, I think, can be done immediately. My concern is interoperability. I, am, I attend all the connectathons that are in state. I'm in the United States. I don't travel abroad for the most part, but we've been going to them from the onset of fire. And Oslem was one of my developers here, and I were the one only females in the room <laughs> for the first um, one that we attended. And, you know, it's grown and there's more people attending, there's more females there. But, you know, that concept of everyone's doing this and now everyone's required to do fire if they want to be ONC certified. Are we going to be interoperable? Are we creating the same problems we already have? And I say that because a resource for something like lab results can be done so many different ways. Um, and if you're not going to connect with ONS and the EMR systems are not collaborating, we're going to have interoperability nightmare on our hands. Um, there's a call for everyone to start testing against the ONC APIs. I'm not one to advocate for more government in any way, but there does have to be standards and, you know, there's three stages to interoperability. And in that process, we need to be hitting them. And if we don't hit three stages of interoperability, we're going to run into troubles with being interoperable. Could you no, speak good. to the three, yeah, the three stages of interoperability, what they are and where you think we are or where are we? Sure. So um, level one is the lowest level and it's functional. The function, the, the first level of interoperability involves basic standards. We have the basic standards now. We now have HL7 fire normative. We're going to be able to, it's going to be backwards compatible from this point forward. So with that being said, and HL7 and ONC agreeing on the standard, um, level one has been accomplished. Once the EMR systems take that on, there's several EMR systems that didn't go with fire for the API. Um, that's a problem because now they have people using those APIs and they need to now use fire for that. So they will have to make that transition. Level two is structure. At that point, the data can be interpreted. So when you receive the structured data, are you and it does it remain consistent? That's this challenge because of this thing I stated before is 
the structure is there, but is everybody doing the same structure? If, and if you take PHRs, which is the patient health records, or PMRs, patient medical records, these are apps that are supposed to be on people's phones. There's developers out there creating them. If that PHR tries to hook up to, let's say, Connect EHRs, our Dynamic Fire, that our, our company I work for offers, if we take Dynamic Fire and we connect to it, can Epic then connect to that same PHR using the same resources? But we build in individual interfaces again to a PHR. That's the question I think that's out there right now. That second, the intermediate level, is the structure consistent? And does it remain consistent? And yes, the, the standard could be, but is the implement, are the M implementers doing their part to make sure that they're interoperable? And are they attending the connect-a-thons and the implementation bonds and making sure that they can work with these teams to, and work with other systems? And the third level is more about the solution. Will we be able to exchange information? Healthcare information systems will be able to exchange and interpret and use the data. The use of the data is going to be easier for the patient because Apple has stepped up and they're going to give the data. People will follow. Systems will follow. Android's going to have, you know, something equivalent to that or already does have something equivalent to that. Um, that's what, that's going to happen for the, for the patient, but the clinicians will not, or, and they, they're, they're supposed to. Um, they're not comfortable. They don't trust the data coming from other systems. And so reconciling someone else's document or resource into your system seems to be a struggle. And it's because of trust. It's because of liability. It's because there's no provenance. And provenance is the ability to know who and when something was done or who owns it for auditing purposes. And with that, you know, that it's coming. It's part of the, the proposed rule from ONC is to ensure that every exchange of data has a provenance so you know who's responsible for that information. I think once we have that, then we'll be okay and doctors will start trusting the information. But with ONC 2015 edition CCDAs, there's a reconciliation requirement to pull data in and reconcile problems, medication, and medication allergies. And that data is supposed to be pulled into the system and made part of the health record. There's not many EMR systems that are using that functionality. Yes, they're certified on it. Yes, it exists. But if I am transitioned from my primary care doctor to my ENT, he should get a transition of care document and he should pull that into his system so he already knows what my medications are or my allergies. But they're not doing it. It's not happening. They might be reading the PDF so that they know a little bit about it and they can talk to me and ask me questions from the PDF, but they're not pulling that data in because they don't trust it is the theory I have at this point. Rachelle, you have done such a beautiful job explaining things so simply <laughs> and you touched on another very important word. So I'm going one layer deeper into this onion okay. or this rabbit hole we're in. It's going to get a little bit darker. <laughs> There's, okay. You touched on an important word, which is provenance. So talk to me about where blockchain now is coming on the scene to help be that verification. And I guess maybe if you can bring it full circle from on everything, the evolution of what you've walked all of our listeners through, talk to me about where blockchain fits and tell me what this whole thing looks like in three or five years from where you sit. Okay, so I 
looked into blockchain as the buzzword last year before him trying to get enough information. So I felt like I knew what my questions were that I was going to ask and who did I need to talk to. It was way too soon. This year, it's coming around. I'm not following it as closely as other members of my team are at this point, but we need to have an answer to the patient ID. We need to know who patients are. And can blockchain offer that? If it's not a national registry of patients, I don't know how that happens. I'm still skeptical. I do know that people are using blockchain. I do hear it out there. I see companies. I know there's EMR systems that run on blockchain, but it's still a silo. They're still isolated. It's private blockchain. It's not a, like I said, national or global type of blockchain. I don't know. I'm still skeptical. I wish I could say that we're not implementing it where I am at this point. We have talked to several companies that bring it to the table. I do think it could be a help for buyer, but OpenID and OLAF is the process at this point. And everyone's using it. So where does blockchain fit into that? I'm not sure. But I do know a very good part of blockchain in the industry is with audit logs. And keeping track of the transactions for the audit logs seems to be ideal at this point. You know, I couldn't agree with you more because, correct me if I'm wrong, but we can audit it all we want. But that singular patient identifier to make sure we have the same singular patient on that longitudinal record over time exchanging hands for just the right information, but the provenance and the validity to all of those exchanges being verified for a singular individual is really critical to success, right? Because Suzanne Adams can show up. And if tomorrow, someone at the front desk, an entry-level employee, a new registrar enters her as Sue Adams or Susan versus Suzanne, we will never crack that nut entirely on patient match, especially if the patient moves. It's just exactly. impossible. That's so, exactly right. Thank you very much. I, we, we talked to a really big organization at a conference we were at the other week, and he said, I, I said, talk to me about patient match and this data lake they had built. And I didn't really care about it in terms of all of the feeds they had brought together in resolving those disparity, but the ongoing challenge of not having a single unifier. And so I'm so glad you brought that up. So Joy, do you want to take our next question? Sure. I have a feeling, I have an inkling of where you might answer, but I think it's, (laughs) (laughs) let's find out. If you could snap your fingers, put on your magical utopian hat and have any problem within health IT solved, what would it be and why? (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what I'm going to say, I think, you know, because of where this conversation went, but trust and development of your unique patient identifier that would protect the patient and foster interruptibility without fears of socialism or communism. There's got to be an answer. We need to do this. I need to know that Mary Grant across the street is the same Mary Grant that I just saw five minutes ago. Yes, it'd be great nationally, but can we do it just across the street first? Can we do it in the same EMR system? I might have three different patient IDs in the same EMR system. They have systems that use master patient index and match these patients. Not everyone's using a master patient index. I work on interoperability and interface engines and getting people's CCDAs every day, and my hands get really dirty with it, and it's not happening. And patient matching is a must. And then identifying that patient 
consistently post the, the matching across the nation, across the globe, is, is a major hurdle. I call it the white elephant in the room because for years, because I, I came in the industry outside of healthcare, and my first thing was, well, how do I identify, you know, I'm thinking account numbers, right? How do I identify a patient? And they tell you, you know, well, you could use this, you could use this, but basically there's a medical record number in the record. Okay, well, how do, what about Social Security? Well, you can't use that. And there's so many identifiers that we have for ourselves already. We have Social Security numbers, we have passport IDs, you know, we have checking account numbers, we have your credit score, you can get that. There's ways that Americans and, and people across the globe are being identified. Why not a healthcare ID? Well, because we're scared and we don't trust. So how do we get the trust? And if we can get the trust, then we can and protect us and know that insurance companies aren't going to drop us because we have certain, and that's kind of been set up now because pre-existing conditions are allowed. So how do we foresee that coming to the future? I wish I had, I wish I could snap my fingers and <laughs> make it happen. That we've heard quite a few others say something similar and no one, is, no one yet has brought up, you know, the fear-based aspect of it where, you know, ultimately like the fear is, you know, we're, we're headed towards socialism or communism by having a, that identifier. And that's just kind of yeah. nuts, especially when you think about like all the other individual numbers that you can be tracked by. I mean, think about just your cell phone in general. And um, if you have your location finder on, or if you're taking pictures and you didn't turn off your location finder, everything's out there. It's being able to protect ourselves and trust the systems that we sign into. Or And so the structure needs to be provided. Um, the government's not going to do it at this point because of Congress. And it's been said that it's going to have to be the private sector handling coming up with this identifier. It's kind of crazy that we've created this system where we're. Um you know, cutting off our nose to spite our face a bit. But yes. transitioning to our third question, we are building a reading list. So we'd like to be able to accelerate learning for the Hit Like a Girl pod listeners. And so if there are any books that have been impactful to you, either personally or professionally, that you think others would benefit from reading, can you speak to what those are? Yes. So um, I, when you said books, so it's kind of tricky because I don't read a lot of books, but I read a lot of blogs because healthcare IT changes daily. It's dynamic. It, it's ever changing. So I read lots of blogs to make sure that I'm understanding what the industry is saying. So HL7 International Standards, Health Intersections, Code Girl, the things in the industry that I know there, healthcare scenes um, with Jim Tate provides information there. I, I stay up to date there. I listen to podcasts, but really for a book, if I had to pick a book, because that's your question. <laughs> um, and, you know, we write our own blog here as well. But for a book itself, I'm going to go with a really simple one. And it's The Fish Philosophy. It's called The Fish Book. Um, and uh, it has nothing to do with, I mean, nothing immediately to do with healthcare IT. It's a very short read. It talks about choosing your attitude play, enjoy, and use humor in every situation possible. Make their day is a big uh, chapter in it where it talks about having memorable experiences. We're, we are in a service industry. We are offering services to EHRs, to patients, to providers, and we need to make sure that you're making a difference and you're not wasting people's time. 
the last thing is be present and fully engaged in your work. If you're not happy, then you're in the wrong place. And it, it didn't take me long to learn that. I had two female mentors at my prior company before coming to healthcare IT, and they recognized that I needed something different. Now, they would have kept me on forever, but they said, you're bored <laughs> and you need more and it's time for you to make that leap. And they fostered me and engaged me and, you know, where do you want to go? Talk to me about getting a headhunter. So that book we read as a company at the prior company and everybody read it cause it was, I think maybe 50, 60 pages, <laughs> but it gives you an insight. It's about a company. It's about a fish market in Seattle and they go to every day, go to work every day and they clean fish and they catch fish and they sell fish, but their attitude is amazing. And so that's my book. Um, there was some other books like nice girls don't get the corner office. It's a really good book for a female going into an industry with mostly male um, on the IT side. That's one other one I have. And I just want to mention one other one, the confidence code. If you're raising daughters, read this book. It's going to help you. Tell your tweens how to make sure that if you're called bossy, it's okay. If you are experiencing issues with being different, because maybe you are more technical. Maybe you, have, you look at things differently than a lot of your friends do. And I say this because I have a 12-year-old and a 22-year-old. And they both are in, one's in engineering at Louisiana Tech. The other one is still in elementary school, but struggles with, she's just, she's a horse, she loves riding horses. She loves biology, she loves science, she loves chemistry, and she likes computers. And she just doesn't fit in all the time. And this book has really helped me as a parent to, you know, talk to her about why is she a little bit different and that it's okay. And it, eventually she's going to get into an industry or in a situation where she's very comfortable. So things like STEM, she does some STEM during the summer to ensure that she's engaged with children that enjoy the same thing she does. Those are all great suggestions. And don't feel like you can't say blogs because blogs count as reading too. Okay, that they do for me. I read blogs all the time. I mean, daily <laughs> I read blogs always because that's where you're finding out that the collaboration happens. And you can comment on the blogs and, and get more information. And LinkedIn, of course. <laughs> Rachelle, if our listeners want to find out more about you or your organization, what's the best way to find you online? Okay, I am on LinkedIn at Rachelle Fernandez. Um, that's the best way to find me at this point. And we also have a blog that I oversee and put my two cents into regularly, which is at Dynamic Health IT. It's great to speak with you, Rachelle. And thank you so much for all your feedback. Thank you for breaking down some very technical things and making them simple for our listeners. And we always appreciate being able to learn from other people. That's part of the reason we started this. And so that and standing out in your field, the advice you gave us there at the end and what you share with your own children and how you approach work is just awesome and spot on. So thank you so much for speaking with us. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or this guest, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this episode, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you soon.
thank you to Chirpy Bird Health IT Consulting for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more about Chirpy Bird at www.chirpybirdllc.com.